0: On this episode of the BYO Nano podcast, let's talk about the taproom experience from proper flow to how to best decorate and ways to give your customers a pleasurable visit, our guests will offer insight and tips to doing it right. This is John Hall and welcome to episode 40 and a quick word on content. This show is for nano brewers, both existing and in planning. So tell us what you want to hear about. What are the topics you want to learn more about? And what issues are you interested in? And who are the breweries you want to hear from? Email us and tell us it's nano at byo.com. And now on to the show. The good weather is here for most of us around the country, and that means people headed out to enjoy their local breweries. Brewers are striving to create delicious and innovative pints, but should be putting equal thought into taproom aesthetics. Having a welcoming taproom is important. The decor should be a reflection on the company ethos and the beer. There should also be thought to the flow and comfort. This episode features three guests, Dustin Halk of Halk Architecture, and then we're going to hear from Liz L'Etoile and Chris Sellers of Four Star Farms Brewery. But first, a word of thanks to the show's sponsors, and we hope you'll give them a closer look. Grainfather. Whether you're looking for a brewing system to create trial recipes or you want to easily add production capacity to your nano brewery, the Grainfather G70 electric brewing system is your solution. The G70 has a 70 liter capacity, allowing you to easily make half barrel batches of beer in a compact system that won't take up valuable floor space. Ask your BSG sales manager for more information about the G70 today or go to grainfather.com to learn more. We're also brought to you by Fermentis. Yeast is an incredible living microorganism, and we've known for many years now that yeast has a crucial impact on the flavor profile and other sensory properties of beverages. It affects a wide range of characteristics such as fruity and floral notes, phenolic or spicy character, the body of the beer and more. Fermentis Beer Yeast Strain lineup is designed to answer the requirements of all brewers, so release your creativity. Visit fermentus.com or explore their app to discover more about yeast behavior and characterization. Also, you can get access to hundreds of hours of on-demand videos covering small craft brewery strategies with BYO's new Nano Plus membership. Learn from craft beer experts, watching replays of past NanoCon seminars, plus a complete library of in-depth workshops. You'll also have full online access to all of BYO's digital content and an annual print magazine subscription. Check out byo.com/nano plus for more details. Now let's get into the conversations. With over 25 years experience in the profession, Dustin Houck has participated in all aspects of architectural practice. A local resident of San Diego since 1985, Dustin began his architectural career in 1996. His background includes a bachelor's degree in architecture from the Hammond School of Architecture at Drury University, study at the Edinburgh College of Art in Scotland, and hands-on experience in the construction industry while assisting his family in their many construction endeavors. In November 2007, Dustin formed Houck Architecture. The firm sets out to create a thoughtful design solution while incorporating the latest in green and sustainable building solutions for residential and light commercial projects. A member of the Quaff Homebrew Club since 2003, Dustin has a passion for the craft brewing industry that shows with his vast experience and expertise in craft brewery projects. Dustin's combination of thorough analysis, client considerations, and attention to detail constitute the foundation of Halk Architecture's approach to every project. Whether it's a green home design, a sustainable restaurant renovation, production brewery, or ADA code compliance upgrade. He spoke to me from California via Zoom. Welcome back to the show. I'm I'm grateful for your time and for your expertise. And I know the last time you were on this program, we were talking about uh, general brewery construction and thinking about building out for the first time. And in, in thinking about, though, the taproom experience, the, the the forward-facing room to the drinking public, what are a few things that immediately come to mind when you want to encourage brewers to be thinking about you know, putting their best face forward with their taproom?
1: Well, I think it's really important that your your taproom identifies your brand and kind of carries over that theme, whatever that happens to be. But, but also, you know, where your, your brewery is where you make the most profit on your product. Um, and so you really want to, showcase that and and why somebody is coming to a brewery to have a beer versus a pub or anything else. Um, You know, I really try to encourage our clients to to showcase that equipment. They've got a lot of money in that uh, shiny stainless and, and making that part of the experience of having a beer at where it's made. So
0: how should... Should the beer lead that conversation? Should the branding lead that conversation um, when it comes to, start to starting to think about design? Um, is it location, or a combination of all of those? How, how do you start that conversation? Yeah, it's definitely yeah. a
1: combination because you have to think about your clientele. And if you're, um, you know, depending on where your location is, maybe you have multiple locations, you may have different clientele based upon the neighborhood, uh, whether it's a more touristy area or a more local area. Um, there, there's just a lot of different things to take into consideration. Um, but th- there's some things that are kind of universal no matter where you go. You know, it's having, having good access, knowing where, to, where the bar is and where the beer list is when you first walk in. So you're not trying to figure out where you're supposed to go or where you're supposed to line up, having space for that line to queue when you get busy. You know, those are all kind of universal things but um, you know catering to what your clientele is if you're in a more um, maybe a more residential area maybe you're catering a little bit more to to families with, with kids and things and you know getting that kind of crowd in so kind of thinking about who your clientele really is and what you're trying to attract is really important because it, it can impact everything from layout to furniture selection to you know, just all kinds of things
0: well layout for me is always, Pretty important. Um, where I'm going to want to make my way to the bar when I walk into a to to a brewery tap room, um, probably to order. I mean that that's where most things are these days with at bar service, and then you find a table and 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 you go from there. Um, you talked about flow a little bit. What's a few things that that people should be keeping in mind of how drinkers and consumers can best make their way from the front door to where the beer is being served?
1: Well, if you're, if you're serving from a bar, which is the most common um, is to basically having space to queue up and having room for a line so that when a line does form, people know where to stand and it's not weaving in and out of chairs and tables that are in the way, you know, having a clear place to, to line up and, you know, maybe even having a way, if you have a really busy tap room of having maybe a, um, a side spot that's for to go to, to pick up stuff just to grab and go or um, having your POS counter big enough that you can spin it off into two or three stations when you get busy enough to kind of push that line faster. I mean, your your revenue is that that pint over the bar. So how do you make that faster and a better experience? If someone is thinking about whether they should have one more beer or not. And they look back and there's 10 people in line. They they may decide, you know what, I'll just, I'll just go or, or I won't get another beer right now. But if they can see that that line's moving, and you a lot of speed going in it, you know, we, even if you have like that maybe indecisive customer that wants to taste three different things while the person behind knows what they want and they just want to get in line, having a way to widen that POS so somebody can jump in and take that extra order from that person behind them to keep the line moving, ways to just kind of expedite that process and make it as convenient for the customer as possible.
0: Yeah, because I imagine if somebody walks in the front door and immediately sees chaos, or it's going to look like, oh wow, this is this this is going to take me twenty five minutes to order a beer, they might just immediately turn on their heels and go someplace else.
1: Yeah, it's very discouraging. Um, even even or even if you're, you're you've just had one beer and you want to get a second one, well, when you got the first one, you were the only one in line. Now you turn around and there's twenty people in line. You're like, nah. Eh. I really want to stand that line, <laughs> you know. But if you can tell it's moving quick and they've they're splitting it up and that and your the staff is taking care of them and moving through it quick, then it's not as it's not as detractive and and that's going to end up to uh to more yeah. more sales.
0: From an aesthetic point of view, from from an architectural point of view, um, bars are typically the showpieces of a brewery tap room. Um, uh, if you have nice faucets, if you have uh, um, you know, attractive wall art, if you have uh, a, a, a space where the beer is being poured that is visually appealing. does that help? I mean, I, I guess one does that help, But two,, um, does it does it help create a a better sense of place for the consumer?
1: I think it really does, you know, that, that those, the finishes that you've selected for those things, you know, can kind of represent the brand a little bit, you know, colors, textures, materials, those types of things. But also when you're thinking about your, your menu board and having that easily um, discernible, it's easy easy to read from a distance. Um, It doesn't have too much information, or maybe if you, if you want to go into more detail about some of the beers, maybe that's in a handout or a scan uh, QR code or something, you can get a little bit more information making sure that you know that's it's very easy for them to understand what the options are what the choices are um, and and showcasing that and, and thinking about your service side you know how far away are the taps from the counter do they have to take more than two steps to, to reach the taps and turn back around to serve that beer you know keeping everything as efficient as possible and in representing the brand and having that kind of tie into the overall theme within the tap room
0: you know one one thing that, and I know I'm going to annoy some people with this, but uh, because social media is so prevalent in society these days, and everybody wants to, or a lot of people want to document uh, where they are and 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 what they're doing, how much does decoration, how much does um, uh, having uh, appealing backgrounds play into the overall customer experience?
1: I mean, I think it plays into it a lot. You don't have to, um, if you have an Instagrammable photo or image or wall or something that people can, not everybody doesn't have to do that, but the people that do want to do it say, look, this is where I am. This is what I'm doing to, to create those hashtags or link back to your business. You know, that generates interest in, in your brand and your business. Um, So I think having those types of components are really important. Um, We've, try to factor that into most projects these days because it's such a big um, generator for things. I mean, we've even seen um, like the integrated photo booths where you can go into a little photo booth and it has kind of rotating backgrounds and you can get your picture taken and you can instantly post it. Um, You can also get printed copies of it kind of different ways to kind of do that same thing in in a couple different scenarios we're just having a a, a wall with a with a branded photo or, or artwork or something that someone can take a picture of and tell the world where they are
0: and also making sure that you're telling people in your tap room what your social media handles are so that they they do tag you and that they're not um, having to hunt through Instagram or wherever to to find your exact handle especially if it's not, Fully in line with your, um, uh, with your with your brewery's
1: name. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> what your what your uh, what your um, name is on Instagram? You know, because sometimes it can be brewing company or beer company or brew works. Or there's always different versions of what you can call a brewery. <clears throat> but what do they use for you? And maybe you have some specific, specific hashtags that you create just for your brand that can be used in that and, and generate that you know, additional traffic in those media.
0: Yeah. Um, so you mentioned this fictionalized um, uh, customer who's gotten their first beer when nobody was online and now they're getting up for their for their second beer um, and seeing a line. They've been sitting at a table. Um, they've been enjoying themselves for the last little bit. Let's talk about taproom furniture. Let's talk about um, uh, ways to make things not only look good, but people feel good while they're doing it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah,
1: You know, lighting is, is important um, for one to be able to see what you're doing, but you don't need to be overly lit. Um, you can do a lot of things, with decorative lighting to create interest on materials. Um, sound is a really big one that we see a lot. Um, it gets to be one of the first things to get valued, engineered out of a project because it's just one of the last things to get installed when the budget is starting to get really tight and they're starting to look for ways to save money. Um, and so they kind of omit some of the, um, sound absorbing materials that, we, that we've recommended. Um, and, but eventually those do get put back in, um, because they realize that they, that, that how uncomfortable a, uh, a poorly, a poor acoustic space can be, um, but you know, anything to really kind of make your customer as comfortable as possible. Um, you know, there's lots of talk about TVs or no TVs, you know, there's all kinds of debates I'm about team no TV. Yeah. <laughs> there there's but there's, you know, I've, I've talked to so many that are anti-TV, but then, um, they look at what their revenues are with and when they have a TV and they, and it's hard to, to not do it sometimes.
0: Um, right. uh, here, let me, let me, let me clarify just before I start getting hate mail. If, if, there's a game on that people are interested in. Like I totally get that. But if I'm in a bar at two o'clock on a Thursday afternoon and they have the food network on, that's a waste of a television. There's oh, no. Oh absolutely, reason for I agree that. with that. Yes. Yeah, you know, or of, okay. sports Many center sports with the media. with the sound muted. You know, like anything that is not um live sports or breaking news uh has no place. Uh,
1: being shown, uh, you I know, agree with movies that. with the
0: sound agree. off or things like it's just it's distracting. That so that's my stance on televisions. So I, I I should clarify.
1: Yeah, and I, and I totally agree with that. If there's an event going on, the kind of draw you can get for those events by uh, having a TV. But the TV, if it's there, you know, when when there's not something worth showing, it doesn't have to be you know reruns of Happy Days or whatever you've got, whatever <laughs> junk you have up there.
2: You,
1: you can. You can actually um, program those things to do slideshows of maybe of upcoming events you have to let people know what's going on. Um, Or maybe, you know, have a a slide that shows up that talks about one of your beers. It goes into more detail about what it is and kind of tells a story um, that someone could pay attention to rather than just kind of staring at at a mindless show that doesn't even have the audio on.
0: Yeah, um, I, I think I've told this story on the show before, but it, I, I was at a brewery once and it was the middle of the afternoon and they had Food Network on and they were showing it was a, like tacos or it was tacos. And I forget what the show was, but um, I got really hungry for tacos watching this because they were visually appealing and there were no tacos on this brewery menu. So I left the brewery to go find tacos. Exactly. And they yeah. lost <laughs> my money because they were showing me something that you know I wanted that I couldn't have within their walls. so Yeah,
1: that's the danger of the food channels for sure. <laughs> Yeah, which I just I, I
0: anyway that that's a whole other thing, um, but yeah, using electronic spaces to promote your own stuff or you know I've been to some where uh, they just show like nature backgrounds if a game's not on or you know, some you know zen sort of something that blends into the background um, that yeah, also then absolutely. fits in with the general aesthetic of a brewery.
1: Yeah, it definitely does. It could be you know photos of the back of the, back of the brewery that, you know, maybe, maybe the brewery is not big enough to do tours and you don't have people back there, but you could have a, you know, slideshow of of just nice pictures of the brewery. Um, I've even seen, um, live feeds of the cellar floor, um, a live feed on a, um, fermenting bucket, you know, you're, you're just watching a a bucket, bucket bubble over, um, and it's just, It's just on the screen when nothing else is to be put on there. So, and it's, and it still creates interest and lets you know where you are. Once again, you know, being at the brewery to have that beer is, is why, why you do it.
0: Yeah. I remember years ago, um, Lou Bryson was writing in, in one of his Pennsylvania brewery books, and he, he got very excited that a brewery had padding on its chairs And, uh, he wrote that it encouraged him to, to spend a little bit more time or maybe have an extra pint, uh, because he was, he was comfortable while seated. And it it occurred to me in that moment that, yeah, a lot of the time when you show up at, 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 at brewery tap rooms, um, the seats are not very comfortable. Sometimes they look cool. Um, some of those saddle seats that, that some folks were doing for a while, or the old tractor seats that people were doing for a while, uh, were, were just miserable, um, and i know those those metal stools are are popular these days but don't really encourage folks to be sitting around for a long time what about what we physically touch while we're while we're drinking both with yeah absolutely 100%
1: agree with that you know the i understand budgets <clears throat> and i understand like those metal chairs they're inexpensive they stack nicely um, they're durable but they are the most uncomfortable things in the world if that person can stick around for another beer or two those chairs will pay for themselves if you can give them something comfortable to sit on um and and looking at the materials as well you you know um, soft fabrics aren't usually the best idea for absorbing alcohol if it gets spilled on it or or anything that gets spilled on it (laughs) yeah having a washable surface but even thinking about like what your what your countertop materials are and how those are going to wear over time you know we see um copper is a really cool look but maintenance on a copper countertop is just a nightmare um, and, and trying to make it look clean and, and um, presentable all the time. So thinking about the, those those textures and maintenance and um, ease of ease of cleaning um, and you know, comfort like you said are, are huge. you know having um, backs on the bar stools at the bar um, you know really kind of changes how that, that experience is for your customers.
0: So Maybe a lot of variety, this,
1: I don't have to yeah, have all, ahead. you don't have to have all of them the same. You could have, you know, different types of uh, high tops, low tops, seats with backs, seats, without backs, um, you know, more loungy kind of stuff. You, know, you can really kind of mix things up. Um, so you have a variety of different ways so that um, you can just make sure your, your customers are comfortable.
0: You know, there, there's there's a school of thought of obviously when when somebody getting ready to do a build out or uh, a refresh, um, budgets are are, are going to rule pretty much everything. Um, is there something to be said for um, buying something slightly nicer and slightly more durable um, for the long run for a budget?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, if you you buy a, a very inexpensive chair um, that you might be replacing it in six months, you buy a a well-built chair. You may have it for a couple of years before you have to replace it. So in the long run, that more expensive chair is going to be less expensive for the, for the life cycle of that piece of furniture.
0: So let's say you're a small brewery that's been around for a couple of years now. Um, and you know, you're, you're starting to see increased competition, uh, from, from various places and, uh, your, your place has been well-loved uh, let, let's just call it that. Um, and you're now thinking, okay, like I'm going to need a fresh coat of paint on the walls, but you know, I could probably stand to, um, uh, to do some remodeling. Where should that conversation start? Where, where, where should those thoughts start uh, to make the most out of a refresh uh, for a small brewery taproom?
1: I mean, for the first conversation we'll have is with the budget is kind of what, what kind of budget do they have for what they wanna do? And, and then we can kind of fine tune what can be done for that. Um, once we have that established and we start looking at where, what are some of the, the things we might wanna do, maybe we change the lighting, um, You know, obviously changing colors and materials and, and maybe a refresh of the, of the bar face, the countertops um, and the furniture. Um, And and just kind of, you know, you can do some pretty simple things um, and and really just kind of refresh what's there, look at what's worn out um, and and replace those things. And you can phase some of those things, maybe an update to the bathrooms. If you didn't have the money to really put decent tile in there to start with and you come back in and you give it a new um, face up with paint, maybe replace fixtures, you know, fix things that are broken Um, I I, I, I see way too often going into a place that just maintenance hasn't been done that should have been done. Um, You know, the bathroom where the door handle or the latch on the door is broken or that you can tell that they replaced it like six times with, with $5 latches when they could have bought a $20 latch and be the same one they'd have for years. Um, It just, you know, kind of looking at some of the small things and ways just to kind of update and make things new. I mean, I think in the, The brewing industry is maturing and seeing things that other industries have known for years in the hospitality industry and bars and restaurants and hotels. They have to refresh every six to eight years to keep their clientele interested. And I think a brewery needs to do the same thing Um, It's at some level, just to change things up and make it a little bit different, still have the same feel and vibe so they know where they're at, but something that's fresh and interesting that makes them keep coming back. I love it.
0: Any other words of wisdom on taproom aesthetics?
1: Um, Be true to your brand. Um, And the biggest thing that I tell people is, um, is on the brewery side, you're coming to a brewery to have a beer because it is the brewery. It is where the beer is made. Make make that part of the experience.
0: I love it. Dustin, thanks for taking time this month and being being on the show it's great to no have you No problem here.
1: John thank you I really appreciate it
0: More in a moment but first thanks to this episode sponsors and I hope you'll give them a closer look Grainfather Whether you're looking for a brewing system to create trial recipes or you want to easily add production capacity to your nano brewery, the Grainfather G70 electric brewing system is your solution. The G70 has a 70 liter capacity, allowing you to easily make half barrel batches of beer in a compact system that won't take up valuable floor space. Ask your BSG sales manager for more information about the G70 today or go to grainfather.com to learn more. We're also brought to you by Fermentis. Yeast is an incredible living microorganism, and we've known for many years now that yeast has a crucial impact on the flavor profile and other sensory properties of beverages. It affects a wide range of characteristics, such as fruity and floral notes, phenolic or spicy character, the body of the beer, and more. Fermentis Beer Yeast Strain lineup is designed to answer the requirements of all brewers, so release your creativity. Visit fermentus.com or explore their app to discover more about yeast behavior and characterization. Also, you can get access to hundreds of hours of on-demand videos covering small craft brewery strategies with BYO's new Nano Plus membership. Learn from craft beer experts, watching replays of past NanoCon seminars, plus a complete library of in-depth workshops. You'll also have full online access to all of BYO's digital content and an annual print magazine subscription. Check out byo.com slash Nano Plus for more details. And now into the brew house to talk about how one brewery in Massachusetts is embracing a sense of place. Chris Sellers has worked in the beer industry in Western Massachusetts since 2007, starting in bottling and keg washing at the People's Pint in Greenfield and moving up to brewery manager a few years later. Chris was brewery manager at the People's Pint from 2010 to 2020 when he partnered with Four Star Farms to become general manager at the brewery at Four Star Farms. Chris has used many variety of Four Star Farms hops over his decade of brewing before moving to Four Star and now brews everything from juicy New England IPAs to traditional lagers using only Four Star Farm grown hops and, in some cases, Four Star Farms grown grain. In the brewery's two years in business, Chris has brewed four different beers using exclusively grain, hops, and water grown or sourced within 150 yards of the brewery. Chris has also served as a board member of the Massachusetts Brewers Guild for the last four years and continues to strongly support all things Massachusetts in beer and in brewing. Liz Luttrell is a lover of all things beer and channels that energy into her roles as director of sales and marketing at Four Star Farms. Never having considered becoming a farmer, except for a short time during her adolescence when working at a farmstead eating her share of the profits and cherry tomatoes, Liz married one and quickly fell in love with the lifestyle, particularly as the farm transitioned into growing hops. When she's not out working in the fields, she enjoys spending her time promoting the juiciness, dankness, and overall deliciousness of local hops and snuggling up with her beagle Baxter. Liz's favorite style of beer is beer, but if forced to choose, she learns towards anything wet hopped or crisp. Both Chris and Liz joined me via Zoom from Massachusetts. Thank you to you both for being on the show this month. And Liz, I want to start with you. If you can sort of paint the picture, paint the scene of the farm, of the brewery um, and where you are.
2: Sure. Um, Imagine if you will. uh, We are a very rural community in um, northern Massachusetts, right on the Vermont, Massachusetts, New Hampshire border um, and essentially, our farm is about 250 acres of continuous land that is nestled in a um, a, a valley with uh, the rolling hills of the Berkshires just kind of uh, getting started. Um, the Connecticut River uh, runs along our farm and is the, the major source of irrigation for us. And starting in 2008, um, we shifted our farming focus to include things that go into beer. After a long conversation of, you know, how do we continue to innovate and create a sustainable business model for our our farm? And so um, it's hard to believe that uh, what is 15 years ago this year, we planted our first um, hops rhizomes. In um, an experimental yard just to see if they were something that would grow here. We knew that historically they were a crop that did very well in New England, but yeah. uh, with prohibition and what we're learning was probably a lot of disease pressure moved out of this area um, in the, the 1900s. And so with uh, Very little knowledge, uh, but a whole lot of farming experience. We um, planted, gosh, I think at that time it was probably 12 different hops varieties um, to try to get a sense of what might grow well here and get a better understanding of how to grow them. Um, Because at that point in Massachusetts, too, the, the local food and beverage scene was really starting to emerge. And we thought, you know, wow, if we could grow something that goes into beer, then um, what a way to be a farmer and what a time to be alive, you know? Um,
0: (laughs) And 15 years later, it seems to be working out.
2: It it does seem to be working out. And what it has created at this point, um, we are a very small hop farm by comparison to like Pacific Northwest standards. Sure. So we grow uh, 17 acres, um, which is... Small, so an average hop farm out in you know Yakima is going to have probably at least four hundred acres, if not more. Um, and to put that into perspective, it means that we can grow about one to three million pints of beer here at our farm each year, <laughs> which is pretty darn cool. So we you know we have a lot of drinking to do. Um, and so fast forward, you know, to today. We grow eight varieties solidly. They're all in the uh, aromatic category or dual purpose. And there is a phenomenon that happens everywhere that's called terroir. You hear it with yeah. uh, grapes in particular. But what we're finding is that hops have it in a very unique and special way too.
0: Can, can Chris, I'm going to get to you in a minute, but sure. what, what have you found terroir-wise in your part of Massachusetts that, that the hops are exhibiting?
2: Sure. So predominantly for our farm, um, it's fruit, whether it's tropical fruit or citrus fruit, it takes kind of the base characteristics that you would expect from a variety. So, you know, um, cascades being, you know, kind of orange and lemony and accentuates it like to the next level. It makes it a more vibrant, um, uh, punchy sort of flavor that can come through. But also I'll say that um, it can change from year to year depending on the pressures and the stresses um, that are put on the plants, either from you know the weather or um, different insect pressures and things like that. But predominantly we tend to stick in the fruity, sticky fruity category of things.
0: So Chris, you have uh, hop farms right outside of, uh, of your Seven barrel brew house there, um, which I imagine is a brewer's dream in a lot of ways. Uh, Liz mentioned how many pints the, the, you can turn out from from all of that, which is which is pretty great. Um, what is it like for you as a brewer being on the farm?
3: I mean, I could say I have zero complaints, let's put it that way. <laughs> I have huge windows that look out over my ingredients growing, you know, while I'm brewing, which is pretty fantastic. Um, but, you know, I, I think uh, bigger bigger picture, there's such an interesting component um, of having a brewery right on the hop farm and, you know, to to kind of lean into what Liz was talking about in that sense of terroir. You know, I think as as uh, American craft beer drinkers, we, we've we become accustomed to this sort of consistency in style. And I think, um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, hey, my hazy IPA should taste like this blend of juicy hops or, you know, my my lager should taste like saws and Pilsner malt and that's it. Um, and so what's really exciting is we've started to, Um, really test drive some unusual hop varieties that are unexpected in some of these styles with really pretty incredible results. Um, A a good example is a a New England double IPA we did recently as a collaboration with another brewery. And, uh, you know, we were bouncing the recipe back and forth. He said, you know, I really want to use your uh, Mount Rainier and Papete and Papete is sort of our take on uh, the variety nugget. Okay. Um, And what's kind of exciting about it is it's so so different, nuggets so different grown here that it it really doesn't do it justice to call it nugget. It's just a whole different kind of a Roman flavor character. And so in 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 my initial reaction was like, Oh, I don't know if that's a great idea to do those two hop varieties in a big New England double IPA. I'm not sure it's gonna be what people expect. And the other brewer said, I love using those from the farm. Let's do it. And I said, Great. And he had a really cool technique and process and you know, sure enough, it was like no other New England double IPA I had had. It met sort of all of the criteria for that style. Big mouthfeel, huge aroma, big, big hop flavor and very sort of soft finish. But, um, you know, it, it was just such a unique opportunity to showcase the kind of interesting characteristics that and exciting characteristics that that we can get from hops here. And it it just comes down to technique and application. And it's so exciting to share that terroir with our customers and to do some things that people don't necessarily expect, but in a context that they already know.
0: So when customers are able to come, when drinkers are able to come to the farm, to the brewery, to the taproom, um, I, I imagine you want there to be continuity between you know, what's outside and what, and what's inside. And uh, I'm wondering the approach you took when putting together the public facing space. Yeah.
3: That's a great question. Do do you want to chime in Liz? Sure.
2: I'll, (laughs) I'll, I'll start. And then, um, I'm sure you've got some good things to add. Um, it it took a long time to really think through what we wanted this thing to look like. Um, And we, you know, our farm has been here for uh, 30 something years at this point. Um, It's been here much longer than that, but we've been here since then. That we didn't want this, you know, thing, to look like it didn't belong here or to look so different. And so from start to finish, um, the design of the the tap room and the the whole brewery itself mimics the shape of one of the existing barns that's here. Um, And what also became um, important and clear is we wanted a clear line of view to all of the things that we were growing. Um, from inside the tap room, and also from outside. So um, we pivoted the uh, front facade of the, the brewery so that no matter where you sit in the tap room, you can look out a window and you're looking down rows of hops, or you're looking across the street and you can be seeing barley growing. Um, the outdoor experience we also made it. So you know, there's this big sprawling lawn and it's set right in the middle of our two hop yards. So, you know, it's not immediately up against it, but you're looking on it almost like you would expect a, a vineyard experience. Um, we're trying to go for for that sort of vibe and feel here to give that immersive understanding of, wow, these things that are growing out here are also in my glass of beer.
3: Yeah, and, and what's been really fascinating too is, the, is just the opportunity to educate people about what their ingredients look like in a beer. Um, we really, we've had so many customers that come in and let's say it's, you know, early August, you got just, you're surrounded by hop vines, you know, you're, you're drinking a beer that's got those hops in. It. like, you know, the, the physical connection to the ingredients is Closer than you're really going to experience anywhere, at least in the East Coast. Yeah. And, you know, people still say, hey, what do you have grown out there? <laughs> and so it, it's, you know, it, it, you could look at it as sort of a frustrating challenge, or at the same time, what an awesome opportunity to educate people and say, this is what a hop bind looks like. This is what hops are. This is how we incorporate them. And then that always leads to more questions of, oh, really? Well, how do you process them? How do you pick them? How do you cut the, you know? And so. It just becomes this really fabulous opportunity to engage our customers in those ingredients that seem so far away most of the time.
0: So walk us through, Liz, if you can, when, when you're saying you gave it a lot of thought for, for a while um, of what you wanted the inside to look and feel like um, and where I'll it say- is now.
2: Sure. So I will say um, there were a lot of voices in this uh, ownership group and um, different ideas of what we wanted to wanted it to look like. Everything from, you know, like a historic Osthaus from uh, Germany through um, of super modern things. But what we all kept coming back to was this um, sense of place. Because um, terroir is a taste of place, and with the feel we wanted a sense of place, and so in creating the exterior shape, um, you know it made sense to to follow some of the structural lines that already existed here, and then for the interior, we knew that we wanted it to be open. We wanted you know high ceilings, so there's a, a cathedral type of ceiling in there and the whole interior is made from things from the farm. So right around the time that we decided that we were going to you know, build this thing, um, we reached out um, to some local foresters to help us um, find some, some wood that we could harvest that would also help clean up the field edges. So um, very sustainable method. And at this point, I think there's four different species of wood Um, it's on the floors, it's on the walls, it's on the ceilings, and it kind of gives it this very comfortable, cozy vibe. Um, But also it's it's not so busy that you're distracted by what you're looking at outside. So you're comfortable inside, but the real idea of it is that you're looking outside. So these really large windows that we have that um, either look outside onto the lawn in the the uh, hop yards or down into the brew house where you can take a look at our system or if Chris is down there working, you can, <laughs> you know. <laughs>
3: you bang on the glass. <laughs> make,
2: make faces at him and all of that fun stuff and, and watch what he's doing down there too.
3: Yeah, and you know, we also carried that through. It was interesting as we were looking at sort of how do we, you know, come up with labels? How do we sort of create uh, a, a brand really? And you know, we, we had a graphic designer come up with some sort of, you know, more graphic design, artistic labels. And we just kept coming back to that sense of place. And we kept saying to ourselves, you know, what's really special about being here, even before there was a brewery, was you can just stand in this sort of field with a with a big sky above you and and look at Hotbines blowing in the breeze or, you know, just look out at the rolling hills around us. And um, so we ended up going with uh, photographs for our labels, um, which we felt was both a little bit innovative and, and just kind of an interesting way to connect people, even if they're not here to the, to the place itself. Um, so pretty much all of our, our labels showcase some, a photograph of, of something around the, around the farm or, or nearby. Um, which is just an exciting way to sort of try to transport people to this place as well.
0: Has, has that worked in the physical sense of people who are buying the beer beyond the farm, uh, then wanting to come and seeing where the beer is made and the, the hops are grown.
3: Yeah. I mean, I I, th- I think so. I, th- I think it's just such a unique, it's unique imagery. Um, know it's funny i remember sitting down with our the photographer we initially used for this i said i'm a i'm a big fan of the the german photographer andreas gursky and he does these big sort of takes these the his photographs sort of take reality and and make them somewhat abstract and unique so when you see the arcans on the shelf you know you're looking at this sort of abstraction but then as you look closer, you realize that hey that's actually you know i think of our, our our ipa called bind cutter it's actually the bind cutter itself, the machine cutting down the hot binds, um, but a drone photo from a directly above it. Um, so it's, it's been fun to have people come and and make that connection when they're here and they see, it and they say, Hey, you know what? I, I recognize that.
0: <laughs> I dig that. Um, since we're talking about tap rooms this month, uh, uh, on the show, Chris, I wanted to go back to the people's pint, your, uh, previous brewery uh, where I had the the opportunity to visit, gosh, I don't know how many times uh, over the years, but it was always super comfortable um, sure. whenever I could go in there. And um, it, it, even for a stranger, for an outsider, for a first timer, there's always a really great sense of place conveyed uh, mm-hmm. where I, I immediately felt comfortable. And, and I'm wondering if, that's something that was just developed over time, something that you put some co- uh, conscious effort into, um, combination of both. W- w- what has been your experience on how to create a welcoming taproom environment that actually works?
3: <laughs> That's a big question, but it's, it's a good That's why I'm here. Um, and I was going to say, I, I think uh, the last time I talked to you in person was probably about 15 years ago maybe 16 yeah when that's i was sitting at the bar there brewery, yeah i remember yeah i remember well i remember uh, we walked over from the bar to the brewery i think that's right. drank some imperial stout and maybe some some slippery slope too
0: <laughs> that's uh yeah uh, but uh it was a fun time. I mean I have I have I have flashes of those memories after uh <laughs> after Imperial. That's why you know when I run into Imperial people pints. Like, Oh yeah.
3: yeah, we met a long time ago. I'm like, "Hey, that was a lot of beers ago." <laughs> At
0: a 22 ounce bombers, yeah.
3: Right, right, exactly. Um but yeah, I, I think uh you know People, I, I think, beer drinkers love a sense of place, a sense of somewhere unique, and and feeling comfortable. And I think you know uh, the the people's pint always focused on being a, a a strong member of the community, and I think focused on you know really engaging with their local community. Um, and I think as they made decisions about the sort of interior aesthetic and the comfort and you know, they they really leaned into that sense of uh, that kind of British pub feel, and it's it's warm colors. It's that you know you sort of get that feeling of a little bit of of worn, but in that comfortable kind of um, I think of like a worn leather couch. You know, it's it's so soft, right? <laughs> and so that sort of feeling of like you sit down in a booth at the pint and have a beer, and you're like, oh, you know, I'm in the town's pub. And, and the people are friendly and it's that's really just inviting atmosphere. And, you know, as, as we built out this space, one of the things we, we felt like we had been in a lot was that taproom experience in an industrial park. Right. And so many taprooms you go to now, you, you, you pull off a road somewhere and you, you go through industrial buildings and, and voila, you're at, you're at a taproom in a brewery. As for a lot of reasons, you know, a, a brewery fits well in an industrial building. But since we were working kind of ground up with this project, we realized that we could, you know do something a little bit different, do something a really little unique, create a warm space. Um, and as Liz mentioned, you know, we really went with a lot of of wood, you know lo- locally harvested wood and and that feeling of comfort. Now, you know, it does take a little while to get that real worn and feel in a tap room. Um, and you know, who knows how many tens of thousands, if not millions of beers before you're at that like real comfortable tap room kind of feeling. But we, we wanted a place that felt like you were somewhere, you know, warm and comfortable that you could, you know, really feel like you weren't that far from your living room. Um, You know, and and you are enjoying a a beer with an exceptional view and in a beautiful space. So I think in today's world, people want to feel welcome. They want to feel comfortable. They want to have friendly staff and friendly customer service, and they want to enjoy a good beer with a great story at a small brewery. And if you can figure out how to put all those things together, like the People's Pine has, you know, it it has a real opportunity for success. Liz,
0: in thinking about the larger beer world these days. And, you know, everybody's trying to stand out on their own. Everybody's trying to uh, figure out what's next. Um, I I love that beer is returning to the land and that 15 years ago, you all were thinking about how the farm can be part of the beer industry and vice versa. Um, With the knowledge and experience that you have now, is this something that you would encourage future brewers to be thinking about about blending the two about finding farmland to set up a brewery
2: you know um i will say it would be a fantastic thing cuz um you know historically most towns in New England had a, had a tavern um, and had the farmers that produce the, the grain and the hops or, or the other um, ingredients that go into beer. And I would say certainly if there's an opportunity, would highly recommend it. The, the view is spectacular. Um, and what I like to say is that people also get a sense of what it's like uh, to be a farmer off hours. So, you know, (laughs) it's not unusual to historically find us, you know, sitting out in a field somewhere watching the sunset with a beer. And now we can just do it from from the porch at the the brewery. Um, But it's also not without challenges. So we did not have public water down here. We are not on public sewer. Um, So there's some real infrastructure things that one would have to consider. And also the um, the farming nature of it too can sometimes prove challenging because there's um, there can be a time crunch between you know the the tap room's going to be open and we need to be out in the fields doing certain things um, and how much of that can um, kind of synchronize to make for a good experience for for everybody um, but certainly it is a fantastic way of life. And I think it is a fantastic way to really showcase um, where ingredients can come from. Um, I've talked to a handful of brewers that uh, use our hops and that's kind of the ideal of what they're looking for, whether to um, you know, find an orchard and be able to grow fruit trees to, to make kettle sours or berries and other things. And so I encourage people to to think outside of the box when they're um, you know planning a brewery or trying to figure out what it is the the next step that's going to um, be successful in their business because the the luxury that we have as the hop farmer is um, the ability to be so close to a lot of our brewing customers so the relationship really matters we can get products to people really quickly. Um, we can have conversations about, uh, you know, the, the terroir of things year after year. Like, uh, right now I'm hustling because Chris made a fantastic beer featuring, um, our chaos hops, which is only a hop variety that you can find at our farm due to a happy accident. Um, (laughs) Oh, That's a story for another day. Um, well, we got,
0: we got, we got a minute or two. I want to hear this story now.
2: (laughs) Um, long story short, we were, Um, trying to grow out a section of our hop yard for tea maker hops, which are no alpha and all beta. And they give off exactly what they sound, you know, aromas of tea and uh, a bit of orange citrus, but kind of in the jasmine tea sort of area, which plays beautifully in lighter beer styles. Long story short, um, we had purchased some plants from a nursery and filled out that section of the hop yard with what we thought was tea maker plants. Um, they were smelling fantastic at harvest time. I'm not one to toot my own horn, but I was driving everywhere to show everybody how great these hops were. Um, and, and I know Chris was one of them when he was at the people's pint. And essentially, you know, as we were going through harvest, we were working with the U- University of Vermont um, extension program to do uh, research on harvest intervals, hop oil content, pre, post, and during harvest, and seeing where and how that changes here in New England. And so, you know, it's after harvest, it's October. We get all of the results in. I'm going through the data, and I'm looking at Cascade, and it looks really great. And we picked it at the right time. Um, looking at other varieties, wonderful. This is great. And I get to TeaMaker and across the data points you know the the alphas would go from like one which is normal to 15 and i was like well that that's not physically possible what what's going on um so long story short it took about a year to figure all of this out um the nursery that we had bought the plants from had mixed our flats of plants at about 50 50 with Teammaker hops and Newport hops. And there's no way to distinguish them out in the field. And based on how our analytics come out year after year, they're kind of perfectly blended out there together in the rows. So now we have this thing that um, I started calling chaos because I had said, you know, look at my teammaker, it's so fantastic. Um, only to have to call everybody and say, so it's not Teamaker. maker. I don't know what it is. It's really great. Do you still want to, to try it? And thankfully people did because it's turning out to be a spectacular hop year after year here at the farm and is another one of those hops that can make a truly fantastic new England IPA as a single hop, which, um, is not always an easy thing to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Chris, really quick. Um, on on the subject of New England IPAs, there was a comment. I think it was at the Craft Malt Conference, and somebody was saying that they had really wished early on that, as the new style emerged, some of those brewers uh, were using New England grown ingredients. Maybe using some of the local maltsters um, hops didn't really come up in that conversation. But um, I, I I wonder if you feel New England IPAs are better um are a little bit more special uh if they're actually made with new england grown hops
3: short answer is yes
0: pretty loaded question i I know yeah i think
3: i think the beautiful part about new england ipa is that you really need sort of three core components you need a a good base malt lots of people use a standard sort of two row pale or i i prefer pilsner um you need a little bit of wheat and then a whole lot of oats and then it's complicated water chemistry, and then you uh, use you know a, an appropriate yeast, and then your application of dry hopping. And um, all of those things combined create something that showcases each piece in its unique way. And so what we've been doing is, is taking somewhat unexpected hop blends and unexpected hop varieties, and in, in the case of Chaos, a hop variety that literally no one else has, and trying to really express the the unique aromas and flavors of that hop variety. And so in this case, when you, in the case of the, the single hop beer we did with Chaos recently that Liz is talking about, um, we really ended up with something that was extraordinarily fruity and floral and just totally bright and unique as a beer, um, and especially as a New England IPA. So I think, um, to be able to incorporate new england grown ingredients in new england ipa feels like a real kind of full circle special moment and and like i you know i i tell brewers that that visit here all the time it's try something new try something unique do something different and unexpected you know we we've all had the same blend of citra and mosaic over and over and over again <laughs> and it's done so well these days by so many breweries but at a certain point it sort of tastes like the same beer over and over and over again. And don't get me wrong, totally delicious, but I'm kind of interested in the next unique thing. And I, and if somebody says, yeah, this is made with, you know, I, I brewed a, a lager recently um, for the 350th anniversary of Northfield Mass, where we're located, and I brewed it entirely with barley we grew here. Hops we grew here. Well, from our water outside. Now, to be fair, it's not 100% local because I used a German lager yeast. But yeah. um you know, as as much as I could physically make a beer for the 350th celebration of this town from ingredients grown in this town, that to me is like that special moment. You know, where you say we can do this, and this is going to be unique and interesting and totally new, and what a what a special opportunity to connect people to the ingredients in the community they're grown in. So the answer is yes, use local ingredients as much as physically possible. It's gonna help everybody from, you know, your beer drinker learning about something new to your your, uh, local agricultural economy.
0: I love it. Before I let you go, um, Liz, if people wanna come visit the farm in person or find you all virtually, how do they do that?
2: Um, We encourage folks to contact uh, me directly. Uh, That's Liz at fourstarfarms.com, all spelled out F-O-U-R-S-T-A-R-F-A-R-M-S. Um, You can also visit our website, which is fourstarfarms.com and all of the information that you need is right there. And I'll also give a shout out um, to the brewery because this season we're going to be focusing in on uh, regular hop yard tours, probably starting in the month of May to give people an idea of what it's like in the beginning of the season and to follow it all the way through to the end of the season if they would like.
0: Excellent. I'm going to have to point my car north at some point this season and uh, come up and visit you all. But in the meantime, Liz and Chris, thanks so much for taking the time and being on the show this month.
2: Thank you.
3: Thanks for having
0: us. How are you making the most of your tap room? Tell us by emailing us. It's nano at byo.com. Or better yet, tag BYO on all of the various BYO social media channels and share pictures of your tap room. And I'll invite you to head over to byo.com slash nanopodcast. There you can subscribe to the newsletter and the magazine where you can catch up with great pro-brewing content. New episodes of this show are released on the 15th of every month. So subscribe now and never miss a show when it's released. And you can also do us a favor by leaving feedback on your podcast platform of choice or by emailing nano at byo.com. And again, you can check in with us on all of the BYO social media channels. As always, thanks to this episode's sponsors. Grainfather. Whether you're looking for a brewing system to create trial recipes, or you want to easily add production capacity to your nanobrewery, the Grainfather G70 electric brewing system is your solution. The G70 has a 70 liter capacity, allowing you to easily make half barrel batches of beer in a compact system that won't take up valuable floor space. Ask your BSG sales manager for more information about the G70 today, or go to grainfather.com to learn more. We're also brought to you by Fermentis. Yeast is an incredible living microorganism. And we've known for many years now that yeast has a crucial impact on the flavor profile and other sensory properties of beverages. It affects a wide range of characteristics, such as fruity and floral notes, phenolic or spicy character, the body of the beer, and more. Fermentus Beer Yeast Strain Lineup is designed to answer the requirements of all brewers, so, release your creativity. Visit fermentus.com or explore their app to discover more about yeast behavior and characterization. Also, you can get access to hundreds of hours of on-demand videos covering small craft brewery strategies with BYO's new NanoPlus membership. Learn from craft beer experts, watching replays of past NanoCon seminars, plus a complete library of in-depth workshops. You'll also have full online access to all of BYO's digital content and an annual print magazine subscription. Check out byo.com slash NanoPlus for more details. I'm John Hall, and you can still find me weekly behind the microphone on the Drink Beer Think Beer podcast from All About Beer. Find it where podcasts are found, and I hope you'll tune in. Our theme music was created by Scott McCampbell, and we thank him for that. And once again, be sure to check out byo.com slash nanopodcast for all of your nano brewing needs. And for now, we wish you all the best for small but successful brew day.